and uh, we want to look to the Word this morning, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and so if you could turn in your Bibles there, then um, we're going to address... Um, this message is not geared directly towards this topic. It wasn't as if uh, this this event happened last week and and uh, I changed what I was going to preach or anything like that. This this passage has been uh, in uh, my mind for this week for for months already, and um, it just so happens that the the Lord timed this and so um, as He does. So as you're turning there to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and ask God's blessing on our time. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we recognize very quickly that uh, we are very small, we are finite, and uh, what's worse, we are fallen, and our brains, uh, even though they, they are limited in capacity, they, um, they also are fallen and affected by sin, and so we have trouble grasping and, uh, and wrestling with some of these uh, concerns in our lives and in our world. We think of fires that are going on. We think of people being imprisoned. We think of uh, the shooting that happened uh, not far from here and other events going on, and we, uh, we struggle to, uh, to see and to understand on our own, and so we come to you. Because we know that you, you see all things, and you don't have a problem seeing, and you don't have a problem uh, figuring out what's going on, because you actually are sovereign God, and you are, uh, you are over all of these things. And you say you will accomplish your purposes, and so we can look and take confidence, even in such a situation, that, that you are accomplishing your purposes. So we come to you and we worship you, and we don't worship anything else or, uh, or anyone else. We don't worship our own ideas or uh, some God of our making. We don't worship uh, anything else in this uh, world or in our minds or in our own lives. We don't worship ourselves. We come to you and we bow down to you and we give you honor and we give you glory because you are our creator God. You are over all things. You are the one who sees all and knows all and will accomplish your purposes. And you are the one who uh, will make sense of this in the end, though we don't understand it now. And so we worship you. And we take great comfort in worshiping you. And Father, we praise you for what you have done in our lives. And we think of the many mercies that you've shown us in our own lives, in our own experience in uh, the course of our lives, how you have been tender and kind towards us, even in times of great difficulty or even disaster, that you have ministered to us, that you have been uh, gentle and kind and patient and merciful with us. And we think most of all of uh, your mercy towards us in Christ. And so we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for what he's done on our behalf. We praise you that he um, came into this world born as one of us, yet without sin. And yet he went to the cross, not not uh, not by accident and uh, not as a martyr, but uh, willingly, gladly uh, taking our place and bearing that punishment. It was not easy and it was not light, but he did it for us, for the joy set before him. And so we we praise you. And we worship you this morning. And Father, as we come to your word, we have these things on our minds uh, that we wrestle with in, uh, in our own lives and in the world, uh, uh, tragedies and difficulties and hardship and things we can't comprehend. And so we come to your word. <clears throat> and Father, I do pray that you would work in us by your spirit this morning. Help us to set aside those things that would distract, the things that we're worried about from this past week or worried about upcoming, the things that would nag at our attention right now. Help us to set them aside, I pray. I pray that you would speak to us from your word, that uh, your word, which is truth, would communicate true things to us today that would be helpful in our lives, that would be uh, uh, powerful and, uh, and used by you to bring about change in us, the kind of change that you know we need. 
So, Father, we come to you with our Bibles opened and our eyes fixed on you, and we ask that you would work in this time and be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, you're in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at uh, a few verses, 19 through 25. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Let me read that to us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so our passage today is uh, these, all of these verses here, you're going to see that the main thrust of your outline is going to be on the, the final few verses. But uh, we, we begin our passage here with the word therefore, and uh, a, a helpful thing for us to remember always, and it's kind of uh, sounds cute or whatever, but it's a good hermeneutical principle is anytime you see a therefore, you need to ask what's the therefore, therefore, and, uh, and figure out why uh, the author includes that. And so... We're going to uh, look up and think about what's gone before because the word therefore tells us that something is being inferred or there are certain conclusions being drawn in light of what's gone before. And so if you just jump in at the conclusions, you run the risk of not understanding really how the author got to those conclusions. And so we need to uh, look up into uh, the first half of the book of Hebrews. And in that passage, in the the first half of Hebrews 10, particularly I want to look at, we learn that uh, under the old system of the law, the offerings for sin had to be made uh, repeatedly daily and yearly they had to be brought again and again and that was in part due because of the due to the inadequacy of the offering and also due to the sin of the priest who was bringing the offering and so he had to offer uh, offerings for himself and then he would offer uh, offerings for other people and and the offerings there was bulls and goats and it was really inadequate for what it was trying to accomplish ultimately and so it had to be brought again and again but when Jesus offered his own body as a sacrifice it was a once for all offering that whole offering system was done it was completed he doesn't have to offer it again because the offering of himself, his own sacrifice, was a perfect offering that accomplished what it, what it was given for. And so it never has to be offered again. And likewise, he never had to pay for his own sin to, to offer his offering because he didn't have any sin. And so we see that he is a better priest and indeed he is a better offering as well. And so we see in verse 14 that <clears throat> for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so Christ is the final offering for sin. Therefore, in light of all of that, therefore, our author draws some conclusions and he is going to make some inferences based on that information. So therefore, we come to our passage. And there are a couple of main things that I want to point out in these first couple of verses. In verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... 
And so we, we, uh, if you think about uh, the imagery that's going on here, there's an image in the author's mind that he's been talking about the temple or the tabernacle, and he's been talking about how sacrifice is made in the tabernacle. And if you think about the holy place, the holiest place, the holy of holies, that was a place that was covered by a curtain. Uh, not everybody could get in there. In fact, only one person can get in there, and it was only one day per year on the Day of Atonement. And so you see that it's a very uh, sacred place. It's a very secret place, as it were. It's the kind of place that you only get to enter on God's terms, and that very, very rarely. And so uh, we have here in Jesus that uh, that Old Testament picture of the the Holy of Holies being sort of the physical representation of, of God's habitation on earth, where God lives, where God's presence is especially located, pictured in the Holy of Holies. We see that in the New Testament with what Christ has done, he's actually opened the way so that we have confidence to enter right into that place, which in the Old Testament mindset, in the Jewish mindset, was unheard of because it was such a protected place. It was such a a pure and holy place. And yet in Christ, that way has been opened. And so actually it says we have confidence to enter in, to go right on in. And and what's the way that we get to enter in? Well, through through the curtain, well, not not the Old Testament curtain, but the, the curtain of Jesus' body, because of his body, we get to enter right into God's presence. And so we see that uh, whereas what was in the Old Testament, a very protected and guarded place, is still very protected and guarded, but the way to get into it is now through Christ himself and the offering that he made of his own body, of his own life on our behalf. And so we see that we get to enter into this holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And, 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. This is the second reason. He's saying we've got this in place. We've got this confidence, this ability, this way to enter into the holiest place. And we have such a high priest. We have such a priest in Jesus who, who doesn't die and therefore need to be replaced eventually, who, who doesn't have to offer uh, sacrifice for his own sins because he, he doesn't have sin. And so he's the perfect priest offering the perfect offering on our behalf. And so th- those are powerful things. Those are gospel truths. These are central to understanding what the gospel is, that we get to enter into God's presence because of what Christ has done. And only through his body do we get to do so. And he is such a high priest. His ministry is unfailing. You know, being in ministry, I know how easy it is to fail in ministry. And I've done so numerous times. And and Jesus has never failed in his ministry. In In his prayer on our behalf, in his intercession for us, in his offering for us, in his pleading our case before the Father, he doesn't fail. He's the perfect priest. And so since we have that offering and that way to enter into God's presence, and since we have such a priest over the house of God, we come to our outline. Which kind of answers the questions. In light of what Christ has done, what do we do? What's our place? What's our response in such a situation? Well, first of all, he says, let us draw near, verse 22 with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we draw near in faith. We draw near in faith. And the, the idea of drawing near kind of is a kind of an all-encompassing phrase that has to do with any way we approach God. We approach God in prayer. We approach God in worship. 
We, we approach God in, in fellowship with Him. So any, any sense in which we approach God, that's what's being discussed here. We, we draw near and, and we are to draw near in faith. And he says here, actually, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, etc. So uh, coming into His presence requires that we have or we are to have a true heart, a sincere heart. A sincere heart. If we remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Woody preached on Hebrews chapter 3. And in that chapter, if you flip back, keep your finger in Hebrews 10, but if you flip back to Hebrews chapter 3, it's a, a very great passage that's a passage of warning and encouragement to us. Look at verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so our passage here, when he's talking about a sincere heart, he's talking about a true heart, he's contrasting with that evil, unbelieving heart. He's saying this is the heart we should come to God with, with a a true heart, with a sincere heart. A person with a true heart is not pretending to come to God, not making a show of coming to God when in actuality they're not in their heart, right? He's not making an outward presentation, an outward show. He's not simply going through uh, some dead ceremonies. A person with a true heart, a sincere heart, is one who looks to God alone and not to other idols or other uh, supposed means of salvation, but looking only to God. A sincere heart, sincerely directed towards God, that, that He's the only one who is my salvation. I'm not looking somewhere else. A sincere-hearted person doesn't look to God and money for his hope. He doesn't look to God and a political party or view. He doesn't look to God and America for his hope. He doesn't look to God and himself for his hope. A true, sincere-hearted person looks to God alone and is loyal to God alone as his Lord, as his eyes are fixed that direction. And as he draws near to God, he is to do so with an assured faith. An assured faith. Drawing near, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So think about Christ himself, who's the perfect and final high priest, who has paid the perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. And he's done so once for all. He's dealt with our sins, and we now have access to God. Those facts of what he has accomplished are for sure and for certain. They are true, and they are real. And the more we realize our need for those completed realities outside of ourselves, the more we look to, the more we trust in the one who has accomplished them on our behalf. And since they are outside of us, since they are not something that we accomplish, not something that we do, we can't fail at them. We can't corrupt them. Because Jesus, our perfect high priest, has accomplished them. And so they're beyond our corruption So there is no doubt in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And so we look to him in full assurance, knowing that he will succeed. He will accomplish his purpose. But there's a question. I see a hand going up in your mind, and thank you for not actually raising it. That would be maybe a little distracting if you raised your hand. But uh, if we are honest with ourselves, we see in ourselves that our hearts are not really true. I know my heart. Nor can we ourselves ever make our hearts really true. Verse 22 tells us how we can have a sincere heart as well as a pure conscience, which is our third point there. 
a pure conscience. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's a cleansing that has to have been done in advance in order for us to be able to draw near at all. This is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, where uh, Ezekiel 36, just write this down, 25 and 26. You can look it up if you like, but I'm only going to read it to you and then move on. This is where God speaking says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. That's reference to the new covenant. It's a work that God does in the believer to cleanse them, to purify them, to forgive them of sin, to give them that new heart. It's a picture of a, of a stone heart that is hard and cold and unreceptive. And, and what's worse, it, it can't pump blood. And he takes that heart of stone and he puts in its place a warm and receptive and sensitive and most importantly, heart, uh, blood pumping heart of flesh and muscle. And so that's what he says he's going to do. And I believe our passage here in Hebrews chapter 10 is exactly the fulfillment of that. When he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So I think this is a reference to the fulfillment of the old, uh, the, the new covenant on our behalf. And so only that way can we have a pure conscience. Only by the work of God in advance in making that change within us can we have a pure conscience. Only by that way can we see the kingdom of God as John, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. By God having done that work in advance. And so the author to the Hebrews is telling us that in order to draw near to God at all, we must have a previous work done in our hearts by God to cleanse us and give us a good heart. And so let us approach God in truth knowing that what He has done is certain. And then we must have the cleansing and, uh, and, and the new heart that can only be accomplished by God in order to come to Him at all. We are to draw near in faith. And then he says in 23 that we are to hold fast to hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. We have a confession of hope. Our hope is not in our confession. Our hope is not in uh, remembering back to that time when I confessed Christ. That, that's not my hope. My hope is Christ himself. And the confession is that I, I trust him as Lord. And so really the direction, the arrow, the emphasis is on Christ who is our hope. It's not on the strength of my confession as in I really need to cling to it or else. It's on Christ himself. And interestingly, in the book of Hebrews, the, the word hope is is not our uh, effort. It's not our action of hoping in something. I hope this happens. The emphasis in the book of Hebrews in, in regard to hope is the thing that we are hoping in. That is our hope. So the emphasis is there. It's not on the strength of my hope. And that's, that's encouraging and that's powerful because I know that sometimes my ability to cling is weak. And so is yours. But the one we cling to, the one we look to, the one, the one who is our hope is faithful and he is reliable and he doesn't grow weak and he doesn't let us go either. And so he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering 
for he who promised is faithful. We're to do so without wavering. And so I, I listed in your notes there an unwavering grasp. And you can see I've used the word grasp, but I, I put it in quotes. And, and uh, that's on purpose because uh, we, we are exhorted here to maintain an unwavering grasp on Christ. That is to keep our eyes fixed on him. But the exhortation here is not strengthen your grip. Your hope is not in how, strong, how strongly you can hold on. Your hope is not in your grasp, your ability to, to hold on despite all efforts. Your hope is in that which you're grasping. And by grasp, what is intended here is looking to Him, trusting in Him only, not looking to someone else, not looking to something else, not wavering in that, but looking to Him. The more I read God's Word and the more I uh, live my Christian life, the, the more I am uh, taught, sometimes very painfully, I need him and what he's accomplished. The moment I begin to look to myself, the moment I begin to trust in myself and my own track record and my own strengths and my own abilities, the moment I begin to do that, I let myself down in a major way. And that causes me to fix my eyes on him because he is our hope. And so we have an unwavering grasp in that sense as we look to him and not trust in us or not trust in relationships or self-help psychology or distraction or entertainment or comfort or pleasure or success or pity from others or some kind of mysticism or emotionalism. We look to Christ and what he's accomplished. And so let us keep our grasp, our gaze fixed unwaveringly on Jesus and his completed work on our behalf, regardless of the temptations or even the terrors that might cause us, uh, tempt us to look elsewhere. Because we have a faithful promise. After all, he who promised is faithful. This truth of his faithfulness and the faithfulness of his promise is the basis for us maintaining our confession of hope without wavering. Because he doesn't waver. He keeps his promises. And thus his promises are utterly trustworthy. And we can hold on to them. Including the promise that we will enter into his final rest in glory. He keeps that promise too. So I hope you're catching a theme here. It's repetitive, I know. And, and that's on purpose. And, and it's in the passage. And the, the repetitive theme is that all these passages, all these exhortations flow directly out of what Jesus has accomplished flow directly out of the first verses of our paragraph, which pointed to what he has done, what he has finished. Point to his completed work and his ministry as high priest, that he has opened the way for us into God's presence through the giving of his own body. And so, in light of that, in light of what he's accomplished, let's draw near in worship and in prayer. Let's draw near to God and let's hold fast to him. And then thirdly, we come to another exhortation starting at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up. It's, a, uh, it's an encouragement that we bring to other people to do the same things, to draw near to God and to hold fast to Him. I like that word consider because it, it requires the use of our brains. It requires that we sit and think a little bit. Let us consider how to stimulate one another. We have to think about one another in terms of how can I stimulate you? How can I spur you on? That's what we as a congregation are called to with one another. Not just in passing, not just, you know, if I have the off chance or whatever, but let us consider 
how to encourage one another, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So it requires that we think about each other. It requires that we love each other enough. It requires that we be willing to sacrifice maybe maybe some finances, maybe maybe some time or some energy or some effort or discomfort on behalf of one another. Let us consider. Let us think about it. Let's commit some time to considering how to encourage each other, how to stimulate one another. That word stimulate, and it's translated variously in different versions, to stir up. I like the uh, NIV the best, which doesn't happen very often, Chris. To, to spur on. Let's consider how to spur one another on, right? That, that gives the, the appropriate idea here. To spur. Well, it accomplishes its purpose. It causes you to move. And how do, how do spurs do that? Because they dig in and they hurt, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, you, 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 might, you don't just jingle your spurs. You dig them in and that's when they accomplish their purpose. And that's kind of what's going on. This stimulating one another is, is, uh, is not always comfortable. It may be, it may be pure encouragement and love and holding up and support, or it may be a little bit more of the NIV spurring action, right? I remember when we uh, first had Brianna and she was, she was very sleepy. She was like three days old. So she has, she had a right to be sleepy, but uh, she was supposed to eat every now and again too. So we're supposed to wake her up and she would just fall asleep. You know, she's a little bitty thing and she would fall asleep. And so the doctor told us, or the nurse probably told us, well, grab her hands and stretch them high, as high above her head as you can. Just stretch her right up there. And that'll like, that'll wake her up because it's uncomfortable, right? And so I'm a new dad, first child, and I'm thinking, I don't want to do that to my child. You know, it's uncomfortable. And, and so I'm like, you know, you, you give a little bit of effort. But if you really want to wake her up so that she'll eat, you pull, right? You, you stretch her out. Like you're not tearing her arm without a socket or anything. But you got to stretch her out. you got to spur her on a little bit so that she'll wake up and do what needs to be done, which is eat, right? And so uh, that's kind of the idea that's going on here, that sometimes it's comfortable and sometimes it's, it's encouraging and heartwarming and other times it, it, it's a little bit like being stretched out so that you can wake up and, and do what needs to be done. And so it's not our goal to hurt people or cause people to be uncomfortable, but we, our goal is that we, that we spur them on, that we stimulate them, that we, that we nudge them towards love and good deeds, that they would pursue the Christian life, that they would pursue faithfulness to Christ by looking to Him. That they would keep their eyes fixed on him. And so sometimes that takes some nudging. And so we should consider and ponder how to move our brothers and sisters around us to move towards love and good works in obedience to God. And so look what it says there in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. There's a custom that some have of abandonment of abandoning those that they have responsibility for. And we see in our culture in various ways that that is being pushed uh, in, in all kinds of ways with, with uh, mothers, uh, even, even mothers, sometimes abandoning their kids, uh, fathers abandoning their kids and their wives. We see abandonment is, is a part of our culture leaving behind. And, and that strikes us because that's wrong. It's just wrong. And, and it hurts because... This is a person who needs the care of the person who has abandoned. And yet they leave them. And we have that in our, in our church culture as well. In evangelicalism, there's a, there are a couple things going on that kind of contribute to this. And one of them is this idea of consumerism. 
that, uh, you know, I, I, I always, uh, I, I don't eat at McDonald's very often, but I like their fries a lot, right? But I like the burgers at, at Burger King a whole lot better. So it's kind of like me, you know, going through the drive-through at McDonald's to get the fries because they're better and going to Burger King and getting the burgers because they're better and making my own meal. That's utter consumerism, right? I couldn't even get a single meal all in one place. I had to, you know, shop around, right? And that's this idea that we have. We're, 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 uh, in our, in our culture and it's, uh, it's true in evangelicalism. We want what we want and you need to provide my needs just right. And if you don't, I'm going to go somewhere else or I'm going to shop around, right? So this idea of consumerism that's in our culture, everything's available to us. And the same is true of our churches and church life. And, and then when you think about the fact that in, in uh, the United States, we have churches everywhere. You know, if, if you don't like this one, you can go, you know, a block next door or whatever. It does, you, don't have to, you don't have to look very far to find another one. And so when you've got so many options and you've got a culture that would cause us to shop around anyway, it leads to this perfect storm of abandonment. And, uh, and so he encourages us here not to neglect to meet together, as is the custom or the habit of some. There are some damages, some, some things that happen that I don't think people often think about uh, when it comes to this abandonment issue of, of leaving church. If you think about those who abandon, those who do the abandoning, who leave, who shop around, uh, suffer because they remove themselves from the people who've been called by God to point them to Christ when they need it most. So we, we, are, we are like a safety net for one another thinking about each other, how to stimulate and spur one another on and encourage each other in Christ. We're like a safety net for one another. We're part of the body that's been given by God to encourage one another. And the person who abandons leaves that place of safety, leaves those people behind, leaves their care and their concern, their consideration, leaves behind that net of protection. And so they abandon that. They go off on their own and, uh, and they're, they're in, ends up uh, being suffering that they don't even uh, perceive, I think, in their own lives because of them having left. They also suffer because they've abandoned the preaching of God's word to them. Because part of the safety net that we have is that you have uh, an eldership over you that God has put in place. We know you and we preach God's word from you to you. We're here with you. We, we're a part of this community. And so I don't know all of your, all of your problems and, and, you know, probably wouldn't want to know all of your problems, but I, I know your history and I know, I know your lives and I live here with you and, and I interact with you and have conversation with you. And, and so I can preach sermons that are applicable to you. And so when you, when you step out of one environment where that's the case, where you've got a, a preacher who knows you and is preaching God's word to you and go into another place, another church where you're not known, you don't have that directed teaching, that directed shepherding from God. Or if you look to the internet for that, the internet preachers are great. There are many great internet preachers who don't know you and have no responsibility from God to shepherd you. They don't know your lives. They don't know your struggles. And, and God has not given them the responsibility to shepherd you. And so the, the one who abandons steps out of uh, those areas of protection, steps, ver- leaves the very structure that's meant to keep that person safe. And of course, those who are abandoned suffer because some of God's instruments that are meant to provoke us to continue following and obeying Christ have sidelined themselves, have removed themselves from the equation. They were part of the voices calling me to 
to continue following Christ, and then they left. And so now there are fewer voices calling me to follow Christ. And the church suffers the demoralizing effects of people leaving. And the church suffers as people who are meant by God to be invested in encouraging them instead leave them behind. So the very people that are supposed to be loving us and, and invested in encouraging us and, and taking care of us and providing uh, this stimulation for us, instead they do the exact opposite by removing themselves. And so this, this abandonment culture that we have now is obviously here in, uh, in Hebrews is not a new thing. It's not something brand new to our time. There are certain things in place that maybe make it more volatile or more uh, easy to do or whatever now. But we have encouragement all the way back here from the first century not to neglect meeting together, but encouraging one another. And so I'm kind of preaching to the choir because, of course, you're here. <laughs> and I, I understand that and I appreciate that. But, but we need to have a culture, uh, a, a shift in our culture where we're no longer this consumer-type mentality, but more like a family where I'm invested in you and you're invested in me in spurring one another on to love and good deeds. And we are to do so, encouraging one another day after day as you see the day drawing near. So there's an urgency in this encouragement that, that it's not just, I'll get around to it sometime. There's an urgency. And I think the, the uh, shooting this past weekend in our community raises that idea in our minds even more that we really don't know when the end will come. You know, the day drawing near, the the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the the big day when when it all ends and we all stand before God. Well, that, that will happen at some point when everyone living will stand in that way and it'll be the end, but each of us faces an end. He just said in the previous chapter in Hebrews that it's appointed for every man to die. And then comes judgment. So that day is coming for us. And we don't know when it was. And, and uh, the man who lost his life just this past weekend and, and uh, the, uh, uh, the other man that we heard about who lost his life this week didn't expect that. Didn't, didn't wake up thinking that was coming. And so, so we can't just get around to it eventually. We can't just get around to encouraging one another eventually because we don't know. And so let's encourage each other now and let's think about ways now that we can encourage each other, that we can point one another to Christ, that we can continue to direct our eyes and direct the eyes of others to Christ himself day by day. And if you think about yourself, how often do you need encouragement? In one way or another, day by day, day by day. And I find that I especially need it when I don't think I need it because I'm doing fine. Thanks. Right. And it's right about that time that I stub my toe right? I need encouragement. I need direction. Sometimes it's very comforting. And sometimes it's a little bit more like the jingle of spurs. And we need that. And so we're called to encourage each other in that way. We're called to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And so I have some takeaways from our passage here today. And the first one does have to do with that, that uh, call to urgency in light of the uh, shooting that was at the LDS church uh, just this last Weekend, And in light of the death of that man that we heard about this morning, let's be diligent to encourage one another every day to look to Christ and to draw near to God by the way that Jesus has opened. Let's encourage each other that direction. That should, that should pepper our season, our conversation, that we would be encouraging each other to continue following Christ and Christ alone. Life is short and it's uncertain. And so let's direct others to Christ as often as we can. Even when we're trying to comfort people in the community who are not believers, what's the comfort that we can offer? 
the gospel. The accomplished work of Christ is the comfort that we can offer. You need to think about how you're going to word that. But the person is in a position where they're considering the brevity of life and having lost a loved one or uh, maybe it'll happen to me or this life is sure uncertain. They're in a place where they're asking questions and you have the answer. Jesus himself, his accomplished work applied to them. And so let's give that. Let's give that uh, that message of encouragement. Let's be quick to take that to each other and in our communities, particularly in this time of, of suffering. There's a second takeaway. Christian encouragement is always rooted in the gospel. And the best place to find it for ourselves is at church. Where else do you hear the gospel proclaimed every week? By people who know you and love you. It's so encouraging for us to be here. And by the way, this, what we're doing now, is what God has ordained for that purpose. That we proclaim the word, that we proclaim the gospel, that we direct one another, that we meet together, not forsaking to meet together, meeting together and pointing each other to Christ. That is what God has directed us to do. This is where we hear the gospel preached from the pulpit every week. We're taught what the gospel is. We're encouraged to believe it. We're encouraged to direct other people to believe it week in and week out. And this is where we get to encourage each other. We get to invest in the lives of our brothers and sisters, our family in Christ. This is where we get to do that. And so the encouragement in this passage is very strongly geared toward us being here, reminding ourselves, remembering what Christ has done on our behalf, that he has opened up the way that we have entrance into God's very presence, Uh, his presence that should destroy us. But it doesn't because we are in Christ. Let's remember that. Let's call that to attention. Let's, let's remind one another of that. And we have such a high priest over us, ministering in such a way. So let's draw near and let's hold fast to that. Let's keep our eyes fixed. And when you see my eyes wavering from that, spur me on. Encourage me to refix my eyes on Christ. And I will do the same for you. And that's what he's designed the church to do. That's what he's talking about here in this passage Since Christians have been made right with God by what Jesus has done, we should worship God, remember and believe His promises to us, and encourage other Christians to do the same. And that's one of the great reasons why we go to church, so that we can encourage others and be encouraged to keep following Christ. As we keep Him fixed in our minds, as we keep Him fixed before us, and keep our eyes on Him. And so the encouragement from this passage is that we would do that. And the encouragement in light of the situation of, uh, of, of the death in our community and the suffering that goes, goes with that is that we have the solution. We have the answer in the midst of that pain. And so many who are going through that pain, so many who are suffering from those open wounds of that pain and loss don't know that answer. We have it. Let's take it to them. Let's give them Christ. Let's talk to them about the completed, the accomplished, finished work of Christ, who is the perfect high priest, that we would encourage them to draw near through Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we have dealt with some uh, painful topics this morning. And there is a sense in our community of uh, sobriety, 
of an awareness of the brevity of our lives. And as we look to Christ, I find perfect hope in the midst of that suffering. I find hope in who Christ is and what He has done. And so, Father, we draw near now together. We draw near because we have been regenerated in Christ. We've been made alive. Our heart of stone has been removed. A heart of flesh has been put in that we might worship you. And the entrance has been opened by Christ that we might come to you. And so we do. We come to you. We draw near to you and we worship you and we pray. And we thank you that we get to do so. Father, help us this week to hold fast. To keep our eyes fixed on you. That when the need grows greater, our eyes fix even even more firmly on you and what you've done. Help us to do that and help us to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to, to spur one another on, to consider each other. Help us to do that for one another, for our good and for your glory. And help us to take that message of the gospel to people around us who don't know. That we would be able to offer this freedom and this hope this entrance into your presence through Christ. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for what you've done. And we rejoice. We will rejoice forever. And we do give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. There will be a family up here to pray with you if you would like to pray with them. Otherwise, you are dismissed.